If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians and the first chapter as we continue our study in that book. I'm going to be reading, let's see. I'm going to read verse 11 down through verse 18. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Ephesians chapter 1, 11 through 18. Let's hear the word of the Lord. In him that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him and were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go for prayer. Pray for me as I preach. Pray for yourselves uh, as you sit under the proclamation of God's word this morning that you wouldn't be thinking about anything except the gospel. This is God's time. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we beseech you to bless your word as I preach it this morning. In spite of my own weaknesses, my own failings, O oh God, I pray that you would bless your word. Help me to preach it with unction and authority. I pray that your people will hear it. Keep our minds from drifting. May our hearts, O oh Lord, be open. And may you fill them with the knowledge of Christ and apply this word to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we looked at this book some time ago, I haven't preached it for two or three weeks now, uh, we saw that the Apostle Paul had heard of the faith of the saints who were at Ephesus, and the proof of their faith, the sincerity of their faith, was their care for the saints. Love among God's people cannot be biblical, cannot be sincere, cannot be what God calls it to be if it is discriminatory. He says here, love for all the saints. James, the Lord's brother in his epistles, writes this, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so the things that separate us in society, and we must confess that those things have an influence upon us, do they not? Those things that separate us in society, the color of one's skin, the language that one speaks, 
socioeconomic differences, differences as far as education. Some people take great pride in graduate degrees. Some people take great pride in articles they've written, which is fine to write articles, but then to be puffed up about it is not fine. What do you have that you did not receive if you received it? Why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? And so then pride uh, in our lives because of one advantage that we have or another advantage that we have is an affront to God. Even political differences. Now listen to me. Y'all know where I am politically. I'm not going to tell you, but most of you know me know where I am politically. But political differences cannot divide God's people so long as those opinions are biblical. You can't hold to political positions that are contrary to God's word and contrary to God's law. Can a Christian support abortion? No. Absolutely not. We are bearers of God's image. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. And that doesn't mean his mother was a woman of ill repute at all. What it does mean is that from the moment of his conception, he had a sin nature. And so our political differences cannot divide us so long as they are not in conflict with the word of God. God's word comes first in political opinion, being influenced by the word of God. And we have to recognize that rather than an outworking of arrogance, which is likely fed by our own self-importance, there must be an outworking of love one for another. And so here, these Christians in Ephesus, he heard of their faith in Christ. And he heard of their love for all the brethren, which means they were taking care of people. They were helping people in whatever way they needed. So let me ask you a question. What are the greatest needs of the people in this congregation to a man, to a woman, to a child? We have felt needs in Southwest. Greg and Julie, we love them dearly. I treasure them. They both are suffering from different forms of cancer. We want them to get well. We pray for them to get well. Here's a question. Is that their greatest need? And the answer is no, it's not their greatest need. Uh, we can think of, uh, of uh, Robert Haynes, who has lost partial vision in one eye. It's his greatest need to have the vision back in that eye? And the answer is no. In light of what Paul says here in this text, the answer has to be no, it's not. And we could go on down the list. David Justly in Mississippi who had a stroke. I talked to his brother Steve not long ago. As I said, David, any better? He said he's not any worse, but he's not any better. We could talk about Arthur Fokakis, who I've known since I was... See, I can't remember. He was older than I, about four or five years, but uh, I knew him because we hung out at the same place. He was the lifeguard at the pool where I used to swim. Lost his wife. A year later, he lost his daughter who was buried, who died on the anniversary of his wife's death. Now, these are more certainly unpleasant experiences. 
But that's not their greatest need. The greatest need, according to what Paul says here, is that we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ every day. Every day. Because as we grow in the knowledge of Christ, you see, there's comfort to be had at the loss of a loved one. And being so close to Christ and so close of understanding the hope that is mine in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's my comfort. And it's in God, you see. It's not in circumstances. It's not in hoping that uh, my arm will grow back when I lose it. That's not going to happen. But it will in glory. And so our focus then in our life as we go through life day in and day out is in order that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul prays for these people. He's praying for them. Uh, He prays they may have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him uh, that they may become more familiar with God and may know the hope to which he has called them and the riches of the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are things that are paramount. These are things that are most important. Because listen to this. Not everyone who has cancer gets well. We live close to M.D. Anderson. You know that. I can't tell you how many people I've visited over the past 30 years that came here from out of town at M.D. Anderson. Some survived. Many did not. They died. And it is at the time of that reality of approaching the end that our best comfort in that is the closeness that we have with God through Jesus Christ. And so Paul prays for these people. May he be filled with the knowledge of God. May you know the riches of God in Christ. May you know the great value of your inheritance. So it has to see this morning that since a deeper knowledge of God is the gateway of understanding more of the Christian's abiding hope. Since a deeper knowledge of God is the gateway to understanding more of the Christian's abiding hope, we do well to seek God each day with an expectation of his blessings. Listen to this. God does not always give you what you ask for. He doesn't always give you the job you ask for. He doesn't always give you the home you ask for. He doesn't always give you health if you ask for it. There are things where he says no, but hear this. Those sincerely seek God's face for growth and grace, he's not going to say no. Now, if you don't mean it, if you're not sincere, if you never give heed to the Scriptures and you don't care if you come to worship or not, don't expect God to bless you in that. It is those who are sincere and truly seeking after the Lord that He blesses those people and He will bless those people with a sense of His presence and grace. Uh, three things this morning. Um, We won't have time to look at all of them. Uh, Prayers for spiritual growth are offered to a God who is our Father. What is your relationship with God? Well, He is your Father. The second thing, prayers for spiritual growth are offered to a God in anticipation of an increase of understanding. And finally, prayers for spiritual growth are offered to a God who we may know, and so that we may know, know more of the hope we have in Christ. Well, the first thing then that 
prayers for spiritual growth are offered to a God who is our Father. Notice how Paul puts this in the text that we are looking at this morning. He talks about uh, the God of the Lord Jesus, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what does he mean by saying such a thing as that? The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, is it perplexing? Well, it should be somewhat perplexing. That was heard of Martin Luther one time in his study. It was uh, pacing back and forth, and someone heard him exclaim about Christ's death on the cross of Calvary. God denied by God. How can it possibly be? Well, here we have this. God, Christ, has a God who is his Father. Well, we may say this. Well, isn't Jesus God? Doesn't the Bible teach us that in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God? Does it not teach us that? It does. That Christ is eternally God? It also tells us in a few verses later down that all things were made through him, and apart from him nothing was made that was made. That's power. That's unbelievable majesty and power that the Lord Jesus Christ had and described to him at the beginning of the world. Colossians 1, 15 and 17, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Listen to this. All things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. That Christ is a part of the agency of the creation itself. When we read in the book of Genesis and God said, let there be, there's Christ, the instrument of creation. There he is involved in the creation of the entire cosmos. That one prays to his God. Matthew 22, 20, uh, 41 through 44. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. I love this text. I love it. There's a confrontation with the Pharisees. He says this. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said the son of David. What the Bible says. He says, you're right. The Christ is the son of David. The Messiah is the son of David. Let me ask you another question. How is he David's Lord if he's also David's son? And they don't answer. He's quoting from the Old Testament. If he indeed is David's son, then how is it that he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a part of your footstool. If David then is Lord, I apologize for this. CVS called me. I never come up with this thing. That's embarrassing. And make sure the southern one's all. I'm sorry. You know, sometimes I want to go to the bayou and throw these things into the bayou. Whatever happened to the, just the dial thing, and you picked it up when it rang, and you didn't. So, anyway. So, then, if David is uh, the 
If the Messiah is the son of David, how is he also his Lord? Listen to this. By all human reasoning, this is impossible. It is impossible for this to be true. By all human reasoning, it is impossible. It is. It violates one of the basic principles of Aristotelian logic, the law of non-contradiction. And it is this, that something cannot be both true and not true at the same time in the same context. And yet, according to what we read in the Bible, Jesus is the Lord of David, and he is also the son of David. Well, how do we bring these things together? Well, the simple fact is we do not govern by human reason or human law when it comes to the gospel. We simply cannot. The gospel in all of its nuances is not natural. The gospel in all its nuances is supernatural. It's the working of God. Let me tell you this. If there are things in the gospel that seem to be hard to understand, things you just cannot put together, you shouldn't be surprised. Because we are dealing with things that come to us from a God that is infinite. That is altogether pure. We're finite and altogether sinful. I said to someone at seminary one time, he was arguing with me about the doctrine of election. And I said, well, you know, the amazing thing is, given our finite condition, given our own sinfulness, it's amazing we can comprehend as much of God as we do. And that is very, very true. So as we look then, the only way to understand this is the incarnation of Christ. In Psalm 110 and verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This is the psalm where David says that the Messiah is his Lord. He is also the son of David, according to 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. There is the text where God says this to David. You shall have a son on the throne forever. That's impossible. It's impossible for David to have a son on the throne forever. Simply impossible. Because they die. The southern kingdom was a dynasty. Solomon, David, Rehoboam, and on down. It was a dynasty. But every one of them died. Well, how in the world then is David going to have a son on the throne forever? It's in Christ. It's in Christ. So that is how David is the father of Christ through lineage. And Christ is the Lord and God of David. That should make sense. I hope it makes sense to you. King David worshipped and served and ruled at the behest of Christ. And yet, at the proper time, we're getting into the Christmas season. At the proper time, Joseph being in the line of David, Mary being in the line of David, ascendant of David, she gave birth through a miracle conception to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at the Lord Jesus, we see him fully being uh, as fully man. He worshipped God. He prayed to God. He obeyed God. 
However, his dependence upon God is in no way takes away his true divinity. Christ was fully man. Christ was also at the same time fully God. And to me, the thing that he does more than anything else that really demonstrates his divinity is not raising people from the dead. It's not that. It's not performing miracles. I say that because the Apostle Paul raised a man, fell asleep while Paul was speaking, fell under the third window, hit the ground, and Paul went out and raised him from the dead. It's not causing the lame to walk. Peter did that. Other disciples did that. To me, uh, the zenith of his demonstration of his divinity is in this, he forgave sins. Who but God can forgive sins? I'm not discounting all the other things that Jesus did that demonstrates his divinity. Not at all. His very conception demonstrates his divinity. His birth as one who was conceived by God demonstrates his divinity. But you remember the scene. They bring this man to Jesus and they put him down through the ceiling and he's on the floor. Lying on the floor. His legs don't work. Jesus says... uh, Your sins are forgiven. He perceives the disciples grumbling. Who but God can forgive sins? And Christ knows what they're thinking. He says this, okay, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk. But in order that you may know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, I tell you, take up your mat and walk. Well, it was easier to say your sins are forgiven. You can't prove that. How's he going to prove that? Just because Jesus said that, they couldn't demonstrate it in any way. But he could demonstrate that healing of the lame man. And so he gives them, by concrete expression, the reality of his power to forgive sins. And that is a way that Christ really displays his divinity in a unique way. In his life on earth, he forgave sins. He also raised himself up from the dead. The others did it in the power of Christ. Jesus did it under his own power. So it is that he is both David's uh, God and David's son. That is understood through the incarnation. The second thing is the appellation that they use here, that Paul uses here in the text, where he calls him the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. How grand of a majestic view do you have of God? Do you really see God for what he is? I love a little catechism question and answer. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And his power is displayed in the creation. Our God is a great, majestic God. So here he refers to him as the Father of glory. It's a Hebrew idiom. It means the Father to whom all glory belongs. But it is in the context of redemption that Paul writes this. You get that? That's the beauty of this. 
the beauty of it in the context of the work of Christ and redemption. It's not in his infinity. It's not in his majesty displayed in the creation. But it is in God's work of redemption that he calls him the father of glory. As he has talked about God's electing purposes. As he has talked about God's work of accomplishing redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. That great work of redemption and the promise of an inheritance. It is under the umbrella of salvation and the working of God in salvation that he's called the glorious God. And you see this. Here was the mass of fallen humanity destined for ruin without help, without hope in a fallen world. And the great God who made all things comes up with a solution to redeem a people. He sends his son, whom he has been in fellowship with and loved deeply from all creation before time. And that Son of God put on flesh and came into the world and did a great work so that we do not have to live under the threat of hell. If you're a Christian, you don't live under the threat of the sword of Damocles waiting to fall and, and slice you. You live under the rainbow of God's promises and grace. Where we know what is waiting for us. We don't know the experience, experientially, but we do know that it is glorious. And so he calls him here, this great God who has purposed all things according to the counsel of his own will, whereby we have redemption, whereby we have salvation. Don't miss this. And I love the context of this for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom. God is most gloriously seen in the work of redemption. I love it what it says in Romans chapter 11, he is assigned all to disobedience. All fallen under the gavel of God's condemnation and pronounced guilty. Properly so, guilty. He has assigned all to condemnation in order that he may show mercy to all. He may show kindness to all. And he may show redemption to his people. You remember the verse in the scriptures that brought Sinclair Ferguson to a sense of the Reformed faith. Matthew 1, 21. You shall call his name Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. And so there on the cross of Calvary, as the blows were delivered upon him, as the nails were driven through him, as the spear finally thrust through his side, it was for our sakes. All for sinners gain, as the hymn says. All for sinners gain. And as he was there, suspended as the serpent in the wilderness, those who look to him for salvation find that salvation. Well, some may say, well, isn't God the father of all? He created everything in God the father of all? No, he's not. 
He is not the God of the non, not the father of the non-believers. They're God. He's not their father. You think about this. Non-believers are dead spiritually and separated from God. Non-believers cannot call God Father. He is their God. He is not their Father. He is their judge. Something has to happen. Even though God has elected us from the very foundation of the world from time past, uh, even though that is true, there must be a response on our part to embrace Christ. We have to believe. We have to embrace Jesus. And it's at that point, you see, even though that love is eternal, but we still stand under God's condemnation and wrath so long as we are outside of faith in Christ. Because it is only through Christ that we have acceptance to God. And you know that regeneration takes place, that conversion takes place made up of faith and repentance Justification, adoption, that great doctrine of adoption. You know, you hear these things in the Reformed Church, you hear them over and over and over again, and say, yeah, 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 I've heard it before. But you haven't really delved into it. I encourage you to read, I think it's chapter 30, but I could be wrong, In Knowing God by J.I. Packer. The chapter's called Sons of God. The whole chapter deals with adoption. The longest chapter in the book. I would encourage you, if you've not, I'll encourage you to read the whole book if you have never read it. But if you've not read that one specifically on adoption, I would encourage you to read that. And so, <clears throat> the second thing is, which I do not have time to go into it, uh, prayers for spiritual growth are offered up to a God with an anticipation of sanctification. So the question is, do you really want to grow in grace? Do you really want to be like Jesus? Or do you have this area in my life where I ain't like Jesus and I ain't going to be like Jesus, I'm not going to get it out? Then you have to ask this question, do you really love Christ? Do you struggle? Or do you accept? Some personality aspects are sinful. Some people have personality in their life, certain parts of their personality that are sinful. And they say, well, that's the way I'm made. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if your daddy and your daddy's daddy and your daddy's daddy's daddy all had that same fault. Doesn't matter. It's still sin. If you're given to anger, you lose your temper easily. Do you think God approves of that? And do you say then to yourself, well, that's just the way I am. He's made me like that. No, he didn't. Sin's made you like that. And you encourage it by not dealing with it. So Bebo Elkin, I've told you this before, I think, who was a campus minister at USM for a while, said this, if you have a personality flaw, change it. So I ask you again, do you really want to be like Jesus? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so verse 15, Paul says, for this reason I have heard about you. I do not cease to pray for you that you may grow in grace. 
So here are some questions very quickly. Do you know more about the Bible than when you were young in your faith? Do you know more of Scripture than you did when you were young in your faith? Do you know more Reformed theology, which is Scripture, than when you were young in your faith? Do you know more of obedience than you did when you were young in your faith? Some of you may know of Dr. Van Til. The story goes a young man came with Dr. Van Til and asked Dr. Van Til, or made the statement that Dr. Van Til, I'm sure you don't struggle with the sins you did as a youth. And the story goes Dr. Van Til put his bony finger in his chest and said, Young man, the sins of my youth, I struggle with those sins today. The key word, struggle. Seek to put them to death. Seek to put them away from me. And so as we look at our lives, here's the creme de la creme of the questions. Do you know Christ more deeply and are you more in love with him today than when you were first converted? You know how you love Jesus? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what Jesus said. That'll be our goal. That'll be our aim. That'll be our accomplishment. Not perfectly, by any means. But that'll be our passion. That'll be our desire. We're not going to look at it now, but we all go into the school of Jesus after we're converted. We all go to the school of Jesus. Not the school of mimes, whatever it is. The school of Jesus. Not the University of Southern Mississippi, the University of the South. With the school of Jesus. We're going to talk about more, that more this next week. John Calvin said this. Paul asked these Christians, asked that these Christians might be granted a moral temper, that spiritual deposition by which they would be able to receive truth, divine truth, and appropriate it to their lives. So he prays for their spiritual well-being. We have an obligation especially the officers, to pray for the spiritual well-being of everybody in this congregation, including visitors. That's an obligation of the elders. To pray for everybody by name in this church at least once a week. And those who have special needs, such as Bill Combs, such as Jean, I mean uh, Greg and, and Julene, we pray for them daily. Hold them up before the Lord. They need our prayers. <clears throat> So do you have a desire to be filled with a greater knowledge of God that you may know the more of your inheritance? And if you say, no, I just love this world so much, I don't want to think about an unknown inheritance. Well, you're not converted. You need to come to faith in Christ. And if you are converted, you need to ask God, Lord, help me to love the things of heaven. Help me to desire to be there in heaven where Christ is, where I will see him face to face. That's what you need to pray. Let's pray.